0: This time we'd take up and read from our bibles at Exodus chapters 11, 12 and 13. I'm not going to read all of those chapters but sections of them that particularly have to do with the 10th plague and the celebration of the Passover, God's deliverance of Egypt of Israel from Egypt. <clears throat> Just as an Introduction to a reading, before we read, I want to remind you that it is a challenge to deal with, or I remind myself and tell you it's a challenge to deal with all of the chapters uh, here that have to do with the Exodus. There's, there's many things that are presented here in the narrative, in the history that's recorded, in institutions that are established. For example... Though in Exodus and these chapters we have described for us the 10th plague or the wonder of God, whereby a lamb was the means of the salvation of Israel, and we have that, that's not all that's being described here. There are various chapters that deal with consequences of the plague that lead to the deliverance of the people of God. There is, for example, the institution of the Passover Feast called the Ordinance of the Passover in chapter 12, and a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. It's called a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. That's the institution of the Passover feast. It's presented here in the narrative of the 10th plague. Besides that, there's the institution or establishment for all of Israel's history of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread following upon the Passover. You can read of that in chapter 12 and 13. Further, there's instruction in the consecration of Israel's firstborn in honor of God's preserving them from the angel of death, passing by the firstborn uh, in, in uh, in this tenth wonder. Then... There's the elaborate instruction on how to observe or participate in the Passover meal. Then there's the beginning of the exodus itself. Uh, your servant, yours truly, would uh, deal with uh, a bit of this, a, a bit more of this, next week, Sunday, God willing, as we participate in the Lord's Supper. want to, indica- to, to learn from how Israel was to participate in the Passover the meal, the Passover meal, and how then we should do that as we participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so, all of these things, and not only that, but there's Pharaoh's ordering them out. The, the people of God are finally let go in these chapters we read, and they're let go with a lot of wealth. They plunder the Egyptians, the Bible says, their gold, their silver their costly raiment, it's given to the Israelites, and this is a token of the blessing of God. And so, that's all to come, and that's all that's in there, in these chapters. Can't deal with all of the details here, even some of the difficulties, but we want to get the main gist, the, 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 the gospel message here, and that for our living in these chapters so tonight, I want to read from chapters 11 and 12 of these three chapters. Exodus 11, let's begin at verse uh, 4 through 8. Yeah, of chapter 11, 4 through 8. Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals, then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall it be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. There is Moses' words to Pharaoh about the Exodus. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, According to each man's need, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. that is preserved the lamb aside. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel. That'll be the top of the houses where they eat it, the top of the doors. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it, do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's chapter 12. Now we go to verses 21 through 23 of that chapter. 21 through 23. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, some sort of plant, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come Into your houses to strike you. Then verses 29 and 30, this brief account of the 10th plague. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night. He, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Thus far we read of this amazing wonder of salvation for Israel and the killing of the firstborn of man and beast among the Egyptians. Well, beloved, this is a striking narrative and an amazing climax to all of the plagues that we've been considering. Climax, this is where it's all been leading, this wonder from heaven, this thing that God did which was evidently an act of God and a distinguishing between the people of God and the people of Egypt. We read this and we know Christ. We are on the other side of the New Testament uh, and the other side of the cross and of the Holy Spirit, as we learned this morning on Pentecost Sunday. And so we want to find Christ here. It's all about Jesus Christ, who is, the apostle says, our Passover. We do this in preparation for our partaking of Christ in the Lord's Supper, God willing, and to be strengthened in our faith for a life of thanksgiving in the God of our Passover, Jesus, the God of sinners, God of love and mercy, who makes the difference, and we would praise him with our lives and words all our days. So let's consider this 10th plague, especially as it is the Passover for Israel. First, the identity of the lamb. Secondly, we want to consider that sprinkling of the blood on the doorposts, and then The remembering of this God who makes a difference. So the Lamb, the sprinkling of the blood of the Lamb, they're together, and then the remembering of this as we remember also that God had made a difference between Israel and Egypt, and He makes a difference also between us and the world. And this causes us to tremble and also to be very glad. Who is the Lamb? What is that lamb? That's what we want to consider here. This is unlike any of the other plagues. It's not the turning of the Nile into blood. It's not frogs coming hopping out of the Nile and other places and into infesting all of the houses of Egypt. It's not lice or flies or hail or locusts or darkness even. These things were for the destruction of of, of Egypt. The whole land was decimated at this time. Hardly anything to eat, anywhere they went. All the gods had been humiliated. But there was a god behind every one of these things, the Nile River god, the sun god, and so on. And the god of the air, the god of the earth, the god of the water, they're all being uh, mocked by God, as it were, as he champions his cause and shows he's the God over creation, but also the God of a certain people whom he loves, the covenant God of the children of Abraham, Israel. But now why this lamb? Why must Israel take a lamb? And chapter 12, verse 5 says, it could be a lamb of the sheep or of the goats. That's interesting. Apparently, little baby goats were called lambs too, but whatever it was, but why take one of these little creatures in the prime of its life, one year old and male and without blemish and spot and no bones broken, why do that? And why then and how could it be then that when the blood of this lamb was shed and that blood sprinkled over the houses, then there'd be an exodus, then there'd be what Moses had said there would be. All along, we've been seeing Moses is sent to Israel and to this people in captivity to tell them, God's going to let you go. And we're going to go up to Pharaoh and march right up to his throne room and say, let my people go, and he's going to let them go. But not after a struggle, not after a fight, not after the hardening of Pharaoh, the sovereign justice of God. But now, why now? We might think... This is our fertile imagination, which is very foolish. We might think, God, you could have done it better, couldn't you? Isn't there something more fantastic, more awesome? Something like the Spirit poured out and tongues of fire on the heads of these people, and they're speaking in tongues, and the sound of a rushing mighty wind. I couldn't it be something like that? then we'd all get to clap for God. Because we'd all see it's something we, we can grab a hold of. We know it's great in this world. We know about D-Day. We know about the metal of men and the courage of men. And they're shedding, shedding their blood that people might be liberated on this earth and a dictator overthrown. You know that. You no know, guns. Plenty of guns in our society today. And the guns aren't the problem, of course, it's the people who use them. But we understand that language, that kind of thing you can see that makes a difference at the gas pump, let's be real, at the stores and so on. But why this? Why this shedding of this blood and then this sprinkling of it with the branch on the sides and on the header and apparently in the basin or the threshold so there would be this blood all over the door? And how could it be that God then would pass over the, Egyptian, the Israelite households but then get Pharaoh to let the people of God go? How can that be? How can that be? Why this? Well, beloved, it's because of Jesus. Everything God does, he does with a view to his son. Always is. God works everything according to the counsel of his will. We read in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 11. God is a counseling God, and he has a counsel. He has a a wonderful decree, I will show off myself in showing my son. And so the worlds were created by Jesus, and Egypt was created by and for Jesus, you can be sure. And the raising up of Pharaoh was for the raising up of Christ to be seen in a type, it's a picture language, of a lamb and blood. So the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, you know who that was? Children, you know who the greatest prophet of the Old Testament was? I'd like to say Isaiah or Jeremiah or Nehemiah or whatever, all the prophets that are named among here. But the Bible says it was John the Baptist, greater than all the Old Testament prophets, because for this one reason he pointed out the Christ in person. Behold, John 1, 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's this lamb. That's the Lord's lamb here. That's the sacrifice. Jesus is in Egypt. Of course, not incarnate, but Jesus is in that lamb, just as Jesus was in Moses and Jesus is in the burning bush. Jesus is all over the place because God shows himself in Jesus. And he speaks his word. And his word is always his son. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And by him were all things created. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus. And because he's in the beginning, that you you know, he's there in the middle. And he's there in the end as he ought to be in our life, the middle and the end, the beginning, the middle, and the end of our days. In all our conversations, our work, our play. But Jesus is here in Egypt. That's why there's no doubt about it that Jesus is the Lamb because 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 tells us that Jesus is our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. No mistake about it. Clear as a bell, as we say. First Peter one verse eighteen and nineteen. Again proving the identity of the Lamb of God. First Peter one eighteen, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. You're not redeemed by silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ is of a lamb without blemish and without spot. goes on to say there in Peter, he ordained, indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's beautiful. If you want to... Go even further and deeper, and in your discussions tonight, for surely we'll talk about the Word of God and the Spirit of God whom, of whom we've heard today. Go to Revelation 13, verse 8. There's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So if we miss Jesus in Egypt, we miss Him at the foundation of the world, we Don't understand the counsel of God according to which these miracles are being worked and according to which this miracle especially has got to be for the picture that God is painting here. God's a wonderful painter and he paints with blood and he paints on doors and he paints so that the people of God today even can be edified as you. That's so I can be edified, built up in the faith. What a painter, what an artist is God. Hebrews 9, verse uh, 13 through 15, one other verse, that's all, to prove to you just how the Bible in every point in the New Testament verifies what was going on in the old. Hebrews nine thirteen. 13, For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the in- eternal inheritance. Hebrews nine thirteen. 13 through fifteen. Now, at the risk of missing an opportunity for catechism here and teaching and basics, I'll pass over the fact that Jesus is this Lamb of God and to a T, the Lamb of God without blemish matches Jesus without blemish, without sin, Lamb of God of the first year points to Jesus who was taken in the midst of his years, the psalmist says in Psalm 102. Right in the middle of the prime of his life, there must be this man who's offered and who offers himself willingly. Lamb of God must be a male. Jesus is a male. The Lamb of God must be perfect in every way to picture Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for our salvation. Now, what does this mean? That's the identity of the lamb, but now the significance of this. Three things I have. Three things. First of all, he's a lamb of God here and a lamb whose blood is sprinkled here on the houses of the Israelites only. Remember that. There's a theological statement that's being made here, and that is that God is Israel's God alone, and Christ is the lamb for Israel alone. We confess as reformed people the doctrine of what's called limited atonement. Here it is. The congregation of Israel repeatedly is said in Exodus uh, 11 through 13 to be the congregation who's given a lamb and the ordinance of a lamb and the blood of a lamb, that way of God. The Egyptians are left without the lamb. That's fatal. That will be their death to which God had ordained them. Now, of course, there's a mixed multitude. We know that goes out with Israel. But the fact is, there's a type here that's being painted. Again, a picture. Israel's the people of God. Israel's is a type or picture of true people of God. Not everybody was a child of God. A lot of them were just scoundrels. And most of them died in the wilderness, never entered the promised land. Or be that as it may, not all of the Egyptians, according to the narrative, were scoundrels either, though many of them were, not just Pharaoh, but all of his hosts that followed uh, that followed Egypt and repented of the repentance and of their giving the gifts to, to Israel to enjoy. They wanted it back. But there's a picture here. That people, one, Israel, is called the Son of God. God's appointed that this people be as Jesus, and Jesus be in the midst, and they be as true children of God in Jesus, chosen before the foundation of the world. The Egyptians... They're the pictures of the wicked people who go to hell. And they're left. And their firstborn is cut off. That's a picture. Psalm 78 tells us what that's a picture of. Psalm 78 and verse 51. Israel's firstborn is depicted there in Psalm 78 as the strength of the tents of Ham. Said there... And God destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham, but he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. So a distinction is made between the people of God, they're let out, and the people of Ham, that would be the Egyptians, who stay in and their strength is killed. That's what firstborn means. The strength and the future of a family lie, uh, lay in the firstborn of that family. The firstborn of man and beast being killed meant death. No future, hopeless despair. No wonder Pharaoh cries out, and there's a cry that goes up out of Egypt in the middle of the night. Must have been that they talked among themselves in the middle of the night and shared their woes, and, and gave this anguish of a cry. Can you imagine that? And God was no distinguisher of persons. He went to every one of those households, not covered by the blood. But the point of this first point is this. God had made a difference. Israel will be the people of God, and therefore the people of the Lamb. And the rest are not. And theologically, we say Christ died for his own, not for everybody. If everybody, everybody goes out of Egypt. It's right there, plain and simple. If everybody, everybody's on the ark and saved by the flood. No. If everybody, then Jesus died, and when he died, he forgave the sins of everybody. If everybody, there's no hell, there's only heaven. Because where the lamb is, there is is salvation, but the lamb is not everywhere, and so salvation is not everywhere. Not everybody leaves Egypt. Egypt's not vacant. Egypt stays in Egypt. Pharaoh stays in Egypt, and the rest, well, they all die in the Red Sea, but the rest of the Egyptians are still Egyptians still. That's the first thing. There's a distinction. And in this entire narrative, we've been seeing that. And after the third plague, in fact, there's this distinction that has been made between Israel, the houses of Israel, and the Egyptians. And now we see it. And now it really comes out and it really hurts right in the gut. The mamas are losing their babies. And the honorable of the land, they can't escape the finger of death and the judgment of God. And the Israelites have peace through the Lamb. Second, this shows that there is a great, a great salvation here. There is a distinction made between Israel and Egypt. Jesus is the mediator of all kinds of people, but not of all head for head. But then there's this great salvation. They leave Egypt. And as we'll see next time, they go laden with gifts from the Egyptians, gold and silver and raiment for their blessing and for the help of their being constituted a people, for the sacrifices and so on, the rich, they leave Israel, or they leave Egypt. and This will lead to the exodus and the further miracle of the departure through the departing of the waters and the destruction of Pharaoh and his host, amazing. So this victory of the lamb, critical, and the victory of the blood, critical, so that the people are saved. And this is exactly what the Bible teaches. Jesus is the exodus. He's the reason for our being let go of sin. Sin's guilt, so that we're justified and forgiven, and given the right to adoption. Sin's power, so that we are released from the total depravity of the chains of Satan and the devil, symbolized by Pharaoh, so that we begin Begin to keep not only one, but all of the commandments of God. That's the holiness of the child of God, and that's because of the blood of the Lamb. Why is there the Holy Spirit? Because there's the Holy Christ first, who receives the Spirit, and now we are liberated ethically and free to serve God and wanting to. There's the love of God put in our hearts, a smile. The joy is a family of God together pointed toward the same direction. You want everybody to be holy here, don't you? It's because you've tasted and seen that it's good to be holy. And there's no happiness except in this consecration of a life to God. There's no satisfaction in stuff, and certainly not in sin, but only in the Savior. So there's this justification of the people of God, this liberation from guilt, this sanctification, this liberation from the bondage of sin. There's this preservation as well, and there's this glorification, ultimately, of the sons of God. Now, all of this is pictured in Israel going out, and I know there's going to be a sad history, 40 years of wandering, and not... Uh, hardly any of that generation is going to enter the promised land. But again, this is a type, beloved, it's a type of the church on earth that has many who are just carnal and they're not truly Israel, but they're of Israel. But the fact is, God's elect, God chooses, and then God appoints to glory and he leads them there. And the promised land is not some pie in the sky by and by, it's real Because that lamb is real. That cross is real. And Jesus being the perfect lamb taken from Israel, not only but given by God, the Son of God, is the one who cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That we might be his. One for the many. The substitute, that's leading to my... Third point here, but the second point, one other thing. It is striking that as they go, as they go out of Egypt, the promise is given in Exodus 11 and verse 7. I love this promise. Exodus 11, verse 7. There's going to be a great cry through all the land of Egypt, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue. Against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptian and Israel. Don't you love that? What earthly language here, earthy language. Martin Luther kind of language, no God language here. Not a dog shall move its tongue or bite, or go after the people of God and be able to say anything against them and bark away and keep them keep them. In Egypt, no. You know what that reminded me of, looking at this text and pondering over this? Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. No condemnation for the people of God. No, no verdict that anyone could make that would stick Who can be against the people of God? Dogs can't, devils can't, pharaohs cannot. You know that in your life. Anything in your life cannot be against you. Oh, yes, it can plague you. It can hurt you. It can thwart you in your direction that you are going to go. You can have disease and sickness and so on like the rest of the world But it cannot really be against you in the sense that it would make you not a child of God and take you off the road to glory the narrow way. Cannot be because God says here, not a dog's going to bark against you. I'm going to shut their mouths. And if they try to come after you, they're on change. You should know that. The devil himself can only go so far, and he can only say so much, but it's always a lie. When you and I sin, beloved, remember the devil's going to be there in that sin, and he's going to say, just do it again. Wasn't that fun? And haven't you just proven that there's really no judgment, and nobody will know? Nobody's going to catch you. And this is the way you can get by, not only, but but be somewhat happy in this tough world. That's the devil talking. you got to remember to say to the devil, shut up, you dog. Shut up, you demon. Jesus is my Lord, not you. I'm a child of the Exodus. So, About this salvation, it proves that Jesus is the Savior of Israel and not of all. Proves that his salvation is complete. Powerful is his atonement. He paid for every sin. And finally, this wonder and this plague is necessary because it's to God's honor. And that really is the most important thing. Remember, we've been saying that in these plagues, it's God against the gods, God against Pharaoh and a God against all the gods of Egypt, God against this God, that God, God against all the gods. And he's shown that in being over the elements being over the rain, being over the hail, being over the Nile River, being over blood, being the God of life and death. He's been showing that all along. He's God. So we have in Jesus, or this lamb picturing Jesus' blood slain, a reminder here that the honor of God is at stake. The people of God may not go out of Egypt unless God is glorified. Because you know what, beloved? those Israelites, they weren't worthy of being delivered. Their sins had to be paid for. They had to have an atonement made for them. They couldn't just go scot-free, as we say. And here we are, everything's fine. Oh no. So we'll see in our final point. they're just as sinful as the Egyptians. But Jesus, the lamb being uh, killed here, beloved, is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice in the Levitical sense of the word, even before there were sacrifices instituted in the Old Covenant. In Exodus twelve twenty seven, for example, we read that, you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord when their children are wanting to know what this Passover is. You will shall say it's the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt. A sacrifice. Not just murder, not just killing for meat, not just going out and bringing home the bacon, happens to be here a lamb or a goat, but a sacrifice. A sacrifice to whom? God it's the Lord's Passover after all and the honor of God is at stake and this is what the cross is all about this is the principle of the substitutionary God's justice satisfying atonement of Jesus Christ and on the Calvary God is saying I will be God and now will be the judgment of the world but also the salvation of the people of my good pleasure. This is God. The honor of God here. It's the only way. You Think about it. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Christ has loved us and given himself for an offering and a sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5, verse 2. Hebrews 9, verse 26, Once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There was a formal act of worship among the people of God and the heads of the households who were taking the knife and killing the lamb. There's only one way. That's why there had to be the tenth plague. You think of it. Think of an exodus without a cross. Think of an exodus and we we showed that Ra, the sun god, he's no god. We just darkened the sun. God speaking to the father and the son, I suppose, in the trinity. I speak as a man. Or... Well, the, 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 the Pharaoh was convinced that the Nile being God and now turned to blood, we've got to let him go. No, he wasn't the whole time. Nothing would convince him, nothing persuaded him. But this did, even if only for a little while. And this, in fact, was the real ground for the Exodus, the real ground of our salvation. Jesus' blood, no other way, not by any kind of storm, not kind, any kind of storming the beaches of Normandy or of your house and of my house and of this church and of this society, God coming in with, with his armies and locusts and so on, that's not going to do it. Nothing, beloved, compares to Jesus dying on the cross. There has to be the tenth plague. The tenth wonder, the, the one wonder of them all. Believe that? That's what we're here for. The people of the tenth plague. The first wonder of God. The blood of the Lamb. Now we've got to deal with that sprinkling I don't say that, like, I'm regretting having to deal with that. Just that when I consider it, there's just not enough time. But the sprinkling is important. Notice, the blood of the lamb is shed, but that's not enough. It has to be sprinkled on the doorposts. Both. That points out a biblical truth. Without shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22, there's no remission. But without sprinkling of the blood, there's no salvation. Put it this way. Without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there's no propitiation. There's no God-pleasing sacrifice. But without faith in that blood, there's no appropriation The Savior who's provided must be received. We must have, as Romans 3.25 says, faith in his blood. And that's what's signified in the sprinkling of the blood. That's why we read in Hebrews 11.28 that through faith, Moses kept the Passover. And the sprinkling of the blood lest he destroyed the firstborn he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them now what's going on here something very important beloved we must remember in this the lamb is everything the blood of the lamb is everything some people like to say however that the blood of the lamb is only everything when we believe in it so that its effectiveness is only something that's realized when we choose to believe and we can, in fact, hinder the effectiveness of the blood of the Lamb if we do not believe. Now, that's not only confusing, but that's not only illogical, that's anti-theological, The glory of the New Testament is the glory of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, whose blood is shed for sinners. It's not our faith. We don't glory in our faith. We glory in the Lamb. The fact is, behind the sprinkling of the blood is the shedding of the blood. That's the first thing. Behind your believing, beloved, is Christ dying for you. And in that cross, in that death of Jesus on the cross, was your redemption. In that death of the cross was Jesus earning the gift of the Holy Spirit and faith. So that we don't say, yes, we need the blood and we need faith, as if the blood dependent, depended for its efficacy, its power, on our believing it. No. From the cross comes the faith. And faith then is a result of the blood itself shed. This is the amazing power of the cross. Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, is the one who is set apart in God's counsel and in whom we are set apart that he might die for us and give us faith. This is what happens, and this is what happened in Israel. They were saved by their faith in the Lamb and in the word of Moses. They were not saved by their faith and its merit and its earning anything. They were saved by that blood just as much as you're saved by the blood, beloved, just as much as your sins were atoned for on Calvary, and the power of that getting to you does not depend on what you do with it, but it depends on what God will do with it as he visits you in time and says, Behold, let there be my child in calling you out of darkness into his light by the Spirit and the Word. Then you believe because he died. And that's how that goes together. The shedding of the blood leads to the sprinkling of the blood. And so you have it. That's why the lamb became Israel's lamb. Interesting, in chapter 12 and verse 5, the lamb of God that was to be taken... Uh, and to be divvied up sometimes among the neighbors. That's true communion. We share the communion of the Lamb. That Lamb of God is called in verse 5 your Lamb. Your Lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. Your Lamb. Oh, you love that? The Lamb becomes your Lamb. The Lamb becomes your Lamb as you believe as Christ becomes precious to you, as you eat and drink him. Is he yours, beloved? Lamb? It's not, do you like lamb? Do you love the lamb? Do you love the lamb? That's what's happening here. The blood is shed, and perhaps the faith of God's people there was quickened at that time. They, they saw the blood, and again, it's a picture. And they're... They're seeing the blood in the light of Moses, who said, This is what must you must do. This is the word of God. This is the way out. And there that the blood is, and then they're believing that because they're despairing of themselves. And that's what we must do despair of ourselves. And look to Jesus and have his blood sprinkled upon us every whit. Because we're dirty. And our mouth is dirty and our heart's dirty and we're needing forgiveness and we're needing the cleansing of the blood of the lamb. God will look on the blood sprinkled on the household. Another very precious truth here. God says, I'm going to look, I'm going to see the blood and he sends this angel of death to do his bidding and to destroy the firstborn, but not Israel, but his angel of of death is going to look at every house and he's going to look at the blood on the house, on the blood on the door. And notice, he's not looking at the house. Not looking at your house, beloved. Not looking at how big and fancy your house is or he's not having regard to the fact that it's just a hut. Or you've added on and doesn't fit together. He's not looking to see either in the house. That angel of death doesn't look in the house. Now, is this person worthy of my sparing that person's firstborn? Doesn't look at your merit. Doesn't look at your genealogy. Doesn't even look to see if they were the, the, uh, of the flesh and blood of Abraham. Frankly, he just looked at the blood. And that made all the difference. The blood did. In the sight of God of the blood. The God who sees Jesus and saves his people who are covered by his blood. Isn't that beautiful? And you thought that God would look on you and maybe look on your faith. Surely there's something good about that. He looks on the blood, just the blood. And he's the God, you see, who makes a difference This is my final point. I mentioned before and I have mentioned in other sermons that there is really no substantial difference between Israel and the Egyptians. That is no moral difference. They are, however, God's people by his election and calling and His naming them his. But naturally, they're just idolaters. Leviticus 7, verse 7, when the laws for sacrificing were given to Israel, Moses tells them, you shall no more offer sacrifices unto demons, implying that that's what Israel did in Egypt. They sacrificed unto demons. Joshua 24, verse 14 the people of God about to enter Canaan were called to put away the gods their fathers served on the other side of the, uh, the flood, the Euphrates River, and in Egypt. And Ezekiel 6, 20 gives us a long uh, litany of the idolatries of Egypt. That's who they were. That's who they were. Just Egyptian in themselves. What do you think of that? I think we're taught here, don't you? Think about mercy. Think about this bloodshed and this blood sprinkle. That's all mercy. That's all of God. That's, that's it. That's the only reason we're a people of the Exodus. That's the only reason God still bears with us, because we sin again and again and again, and we want to go back. And we like the leeks and the garlics and the old life or the old man life. Maybe you've never had an old man Uh, An old life because you've been born in a covenant home. You've been kept and spared from certain of the audacious sins that some others of us have had to go through. But you have an old man life because you have an old man, an Adamic nature, a flesh that says whatever it wants, that's concerned only to get its opinion out, And then to stand firm on one's opinion, one's throne, and battle all those who oppose his or her opinion. Or to do this and that and the other illicit thing, thinking that nobody's looking and we're saved by grace only and the blood of Jesus only. And so we make a religious monster out of God and religion by being such hypocrites. Remember God makes the difference. That's what's being taught here. And Israel was to remember that all the time. Here's how we do that. Preach Christ crucified and thank God for the preaching of Christ crucified. Just that. Preach Christ crucified and calling all men everywhere to believe in him. Preach that. And want that priest and elders desire that this be known in the congregation that Jesus Christ crucified is having his way here. People are believing. Young people are confessing their faith and desirous of partaking of the supper. Others are joining with us and they come to the congregation of Israel to whom is given the ordinance of the Lord's Supper now. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. And they marry in the Lord those people who are the people of the Exodus together. And they bring up children in the Lord and they live a thankful life. That's what remembering the Passover is all about. A life in the Spirit, holy and happy in these last days. So, beloved, where are we at? We're in the congregation of Israel. We have a lamb that sh- shed his blood for us and faith that's given. That's a good place to be. Now go into this world that's crying out and it doesn't even know about what. This world, so lost in its sin, so pathetic so Egyptian and doesn't know its right hand from its left and righteousness from ungodliness and is inclined to choose the ungodliness. Doesn't know what the problem is, thinks it's a bat somewhere or a spider somewhere or a disease somewhere or some war somewhere or thinks it's something else than sin. And then it thinks the solution is something else than Jesus. Now, that's the saddest thing in the world. Beloved, let's warn them of the cries that the people of this world will make when Jesus comes. It's the last days, remember. Just about to the great and notable day of the Lord, we're almost there. Be zealous on fire, not the same as yesterday or when you walked in here, more filled with the fullness of God, of the Spirit who burns, and of the love of Christ that takes over you so that you love what he does and you hate what he hates in yourself and in this fallen world. People of the Exodus, praise God people of Christ and of his spirit, go forward. Amen. We pray, bless us, Lord, with ears to continue to hear the gospel of our Exodus, of Christ's Exodus, of the Lamb's blood shed, the sprinkling of the blood, and of the happy people of God who's let go, let go to serve and to sing on the other side of their deliverance. Here we are, Lord, accept the praise that we bring to you and lead us on our homeward way. In Jesus' name, amen.